0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation 19. We're looking at the latter half of 19. We're going to begin in verse 11. As we have worked our way so far through, verse, through chapter 19 and through the rest of 19 and even through the first portion of uh, Revelation 20, as we go through, we'll actually see a pattern that John has established for us in the second half of the book of Revelation you remember in chapter 12, we were introduced to the dragon who was um, attacking the church, attacking the people of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God. He was introduced in Revelation 12, and we will see him judged as we go into Revelation 20. In Revelation 13, John introduced us to the beast and the false prophet, and in this passage today here in Revelation 19, we will see the beast and the false prophet judged. And in Revelation 17, we were introduced to the harlot. And then in Revelation 17 and 18, we saw the harlot, uh, Babylon the Great, both destroyed and judged as well. And so as these groups of people and as these spiritual forces um, were introduced as being attacked against uh, attacking the church, arrayed against the church and attacking them, we see God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, judging them in reverse order in which they were introduced, reminding us that the glorious end that awaits us is the presence of God where we are free from persecution, free from temptation, free from the harm that the devil seeks to bring to the church. And so with that in mind, we do look today at the fall of the beast and the false prophet and the armies that they have gathered that we were first introduced to in chapter 16. And so we pick up John's account in verse 11. This is God's word. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Let us pray. Great and gift giving God, we are waiting in hope for the fullness of Jesus' glory to be revealed in us and in the world. And as we wait, we wait in the full assurance that you are a faithful God. We have seen your faithfulness in the redemption that was given in the life and work of Jesus. Through your spirit, show us the glory of your name in this passage and grow us in holiness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been working our way through the book of Revelation since the beginning of the year, the question is always before us, what is the theme of the book of Revelation? There could be a lot of answers to that question, some of which we have considered in our study over over the year. The theme of Revelation could be God revealing to us what it's going to be like in the end times. Depending upon how you define that phrase, end times, and we'll talk about that as we ease our way into Revelation 20 over the next week or so, that's the case. God does reveal to us what it's going to look like in the end times. Or maybe the theme of Revelation could be the call on the church to remain faithful in the face of temptation and persecution. Beginning in chapter 2, the church is called to be faithful to their witness, and faithful in their obedience, regardless of what culture or the enemy arrays against them as a temptation to compromise God's truth or to compromise God's law. Some could even say, and I've said this in the past, that the theme of Revelation could be the glorious declaration that God wins. And all of these subjects are wrapped up in the verses and the chapters of the book of Revelation, but As I have learned, as I have gone through this study uh, into last year and into through this year, that there is an overarching theme that really encompasses and transcends all of these other themes. Our passage today has echoes of Ezekiel 39, which is a prophetic account of the fall of two kingdoms, Gog and Magog, which, as an aside, the, the church has sought to identify since The beginning of the church. Who is Gog and Magog? Who will show up a little bit later on in chapter 20 and show up at the end times? Who are they? Um, You know, kind of spoiler alert here, there's been no good answer for 2,000 years. I don't know that I'll give you any better answer in a few weeks when we look at it. But our passage today has echoes of Ezekiel 39, which is a, a prophetic account of the fall of those two kingdoms as they are arrayed against the people of God as they are attacking and antagonizing the people of God. And in that Ezekiel passage, God opens and closes with a declaration. And that declaration is that he will do everything within his infinite power to both protect and proclaim the glory of his name. Our passage today is no different. It is focused on the glory, the protection and the proclamation of the glory of God, specifically the second person in the Trinity, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the overarching theme of the book of Revelation. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is at work in the church and in the world for the purpose of vindicating the glory of his name. We have talked about how these Final chapters of the book of Revelation are an answer to the question from Revelation 6.10. How long, O Lord, until our faithfulness to your truth and our faithfulness to obedience to your law, how long until that is vindicated? But God is not vindicating the faithfulness and obedience of the saints for the sake of the saints. God is vindicating their faithfulness and their obedience for the sake of his glory. Jesus went to the cross. Not because he was thinking first and foremost of you and me. But because he was thinking first and foremost about satisfying the glory of God. Revelation is about the glory of God working out in the history of the church. Both the history of the church now and the history of the church, into eternity. And as we consider the glory of God in today's passage, we will see the glory of God in the person of Jesus and in the work of Jesus. First, the glory of God in the person of Jesus. In Revelation 16, we were introduced to the armies gathered together to make war against the people of God. Following the declaration that the armies were gathered at Armageddon, the seventh bowl pours out and judgment is unleashed on the enemies of God and on the enemies of God's people. And we pick up that scene here again as we near the final vision of the consummation of God's eternal kingdom. In this account of the battle, Jesus marshals his forces and we are given a vivid description of Jesus as he leads his army. And the description of Jesus comes through these Word pictures that we've seen previously in the book of Revelation, he is first described as having eyes of blazing fire. As John was first taken up into heaven to begin this vision in Revelation 1, he saw a figure walking among the seven lampstands. And one of the descriptions of that figure was that his eyes blazed like fire. In one of the letters to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3, Jesus introduces himself to, to that church as one whose eyes blaze like fire. And this points us to two truths about Jesus and who He is. Number one, He is omniscient. Those those eyes of blazing fire pierce through all of your excuses, all of your and mine falsehood, pretending to be holy, and He drills down into our hearts to see where we are truly being faithful where we are truly being obedient. As we'll see in a few moments, he is the word of God that, that is like a sword that, that 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 separates between bone and marrow, that pierces into our heart because he knows what is in the heart of man. <clears throat> and as he pierces into the heart of man in his omniscience, his eyes like a blazing fire also remind us that he has power to judge. That's the focus here in this particular passage as he is going to judge the beast and the false prophet as he is going to bring the first level of judgment upon the armies that have followed the beast and the false prophet. We are reminded with the blazing eyes that that Jesus is the omniscient judge of of God's world. Next, he is described as wearing many crowns. This is not the victor's crown that the church has given. Those who conquered, are, we are told in those seven letters that he who conquers is given a victor's crown. This is the ruler's crown. This is the regent's, the king's crown. We have seen the king's crown twice already in the book of Revelation as both the dragon and the sea beast are described as having, as wearing seven of these ruler's crown. If they wear seven, Jesus wears many. This word "many" is a word that means more than you can count. It's it's. Remember, this is vision. This is not an actual person walking on a on a or riding on a horse, trying to balance an innumerable number of crowns on top of his head. This is a symbolic vision of Jesus' sovereignty over creation. Jesus' sovereignty over even the beast and the false prophet, the dragon, and all their demonic and human minions. He is sovereign over all of them. It is the sovereign king of this world. We'll look at at Psalm 2 here in a few moments. It is the sovereign king of the world who rides this horse into battle. He is described as being dressed in a robe dipped in blood. We profess the Apostles Creed earlier and in the Apostles Creed after the ascension, we talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living, the quick and the dead. This picture here of him being Dressed in a robe dipped in blood is taken right from our Old Testament reading earlier today in Isaiah 63, where God himself comes upon Edom, comes upon the nations who are in rebellion against him. And he is judging them by trotting the the image of him walking through a wine press and being spattered with the blood of the grapes, the blood of the nation's that are arrayed in rebellion against him. Jesus is God's tool to judge the nations. And then he is described as having a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus judges, we'll see in a few moments, according to the standards that God has written in his word, that God has proclaimed through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And from Isaiah 49, we hear these words out of the mouth of the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, who in chapter 52 and 53, lays down his life for his people. The servant of the Lord says, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me, he made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Jesus is described here in these words as the God-man who is sovereign over creation, who is the sovereign judge who will carry out God's judgment upon the nations. But we also see the person of Jesus in the names of Jesus that are given to us here. We're told in verse 11 that as heaven opens up and the armies of God come to meet the armies of the dragon, the armies of Satan, there was a rider on a white horse. And the rider's name is called Faithful and True. Interesting kind of aside here as we look at the four names, we'll see an interplay between he is called faithful and true, and then it is written that he has a name no one knows. He is he is called the word of God, and then it is written that he is king of kings and lord of lords. All forms of communication points to the to the glory, to the majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Both the spoken and the written word declare in this event the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is faithful and true in contrast to the beast that he is fighting who are deceitful. The father of lies, the father of murder and unfaithful to God's sovereignty and to his majesty as the one who is faithful. Jesus fulfills all that the scriptures reveal. The scriptures reveal that we are in need of a savior in need of a redeemer, in need of somebody that God sends specifically to defeat the beast, to defeat the dragon, to defeat those who are in rebellion against Jesus. We get to the Mosaic law and it points to our need for holiness to follow the law. And yet God, knowing that we could not follow the law, gave the sacrificial system to atone temporarily for the sin of God's people. Jesus perfectly kept the law and he provided the sacrifice necessary to cleanse and to redeem his people. And as the one who is called true, we are reminded of Jesus' words in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. If We need a standard of truth. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is also called by an unknown name. Now, how does an unknown name point us to the glory of God, the glory of Christ? Well, it reminds us of a theological topic called the incomprehensibility of God. God cannot, Jesus cannot be comprehended. Now, this has been twisted in our time and our day to say, well, God's incomprehensibility means that you can't know him, period. Well, that is directly contrary to what scripture says. Paul in Romans one says you can look At the mountains, you can look at the sun, the ocean, you can look at nature and you can see everything that you need to know about God to know that you should worship him and worship him alone. We have God's word, which reveals more specific information about God to us, specifically his plan of how he is going to save those who worship everything except him and him alone. And so we can know God but we cannot know him fully. He is infinite. We are finite. He is eternal. We are bound by time. He is unchangeable. We've changed in the last millisecond. We cannot know him fully. And the glory of the incomprehensibility of God is that we will spend eternity plumbing the depths of the grace and the glory that God has bestowed upon his children and never exhaust those depths. We will for all of eternity be awed and moved to exuberant worship as we consider the grace that God pours out upon us. As we consider the glory that God has shared with us in bringing us into his family, in calling us sons and daughters of the living God. And so we're reminded here that Jesus being truly God and truly man is just as incomprehensible as God the Father and God the Spirit. He's called in this passage, he is declared to be the word of God. John one one says that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus being the word of God reminds us that he is, He is the power that God used in creation, both Proverbs and the Gospel of John. And the book of Colossians remind us that when God spoke creation into existence, it was the second person of the Trinity whom he spoke through and brought it into being. It also reminds us that he is the the declarer of God's will for this world. And because he is the word of God, the standard of God's holiness, the standard of God's law, he has the power once again to judge. And then he is called king of his, it is written on his thigh, king of kings and Lord of lords. He is sovereign of sovereigns. Jesus, as we saw in Revelation 4 and 5, as we have seen throughout this, it is the triune God who sits sovereignly upon the throne of God. Ruling this earth, ruling the world, guiding and guarding his people. Nothing, even the attacks of Satan happen outside of God's sovereignty. Satan, through the world, through his demonic minions, can wail and kick and attack and seek to destroy the church. And yet God says you only go so far. You can only hurt them so far. I am sovereign over all of that. Kendall Easley says it is not Caesar. And in our context, I would add it is not the president. It is not a senator. It is not a congressman. It is not a council person. It is not Caesar who holds the balance of the world's power, but Jesus, the Lord. And so as we read this in here and we get so caught up in where and when and the logistics of this battle, this Armageddon, don't forget that what is being revealed to us through the person of Christ is the glory of God in Christ. This is a glorious passage for us, brothers and sisters, because it reminds us of who our Savior is. He's not just some good teacher who happened to step up one day and said, I'll be the sacrificial lamb. It is the glorious son of God who did not account equality with God, something to be held on to, but became the servant who would die for the sins of God's people to provide redemption, to provide salvation, to provide all the riches of the glories of our salvation to his people. And so through the person of Jesus, we see the glory of God. We also see the glory of God in this passage through the work of Jesus. And the work of Jesus has two main acts. First, he rules or he shepherds with an iron scepter. Verse 15. Yeah, verse 15. It quotes from Psalm 2. It says he will rule or literally he will shepherd the nations with an iron scepter. This comes to us from Psalm 2, a direct quote of Psalm 2. I've been amazed as I have gone through this book over the last year or so, how, yes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel all shape the book of Revelation, but Psalm 2 is in the mix as well. It is as important to our understanding of Revelation as the prophets are. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the nations, the people of this earth have raged against God. But how does it say they have raged there? It says they have done so in vain. They stand there shaking their fist in the face of God saying, We will do our own thing. We do not need God to tell us how to be happy, to be successful, to be saved. God responds, he says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion. My holy hill. Think back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. The nations gather together on the plain and they say we will build a tower that reaches to heaven, that reaches to the realms of the gods. And What is God's response? As that tower gets up into the realms of the gods, He descends. It wasn't tall enough. It wasn't high enough. It, it's, it's like the little... Child that that, that comes up to the soldier and shakes its fist and, and rails against the soldier in his full armament there. The soldier just looks down and laughs at this poor, pathetic kid. It's worse than that with God as the nations, even all the nations, all the kings gathered together on the plains saying, We will fight and defeat God. God laughs because he has established his king on his holy hill the psalmist goes on to say I will proclaim the decree of the Lord he said to me you are my son today I have become your father ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth your possession and here's the quote in in Revelation 19 15 he says you will rule them with an iron scepter you will dash them to pieces like pottery. You know, as we are considering the work of Jesus here. Notice that Jesus is followed from heaven. By an army. What does the army of Jesus do. In this particular battle. Not a thing. Except watch and praise. Our Lord and Savior. It is by the power of his word that he defeats All the armies of Satan from beginning to end as those armies are arrayed against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He takes his scepter, the sword of his mouth. And with a breath. He destroys them all. And so the psalmist ends up with therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why does God give us passages like Psalm 2? Why does God give us passages like Revelation 19? It's to show his glory, but it's also to give us a warning. Because without Jesus, we're not on the white horse dressed in white following our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are behind the devil and his beasts, worshiping the devil, falling for the delusions of the beast and the false prophets, and shaking our fist as that infantile child before the all-powerful, sovereign, triune God of the universe saying, I'm going to do it my way. And God laughs at us apart from Christ. But because of the work of Jesus, we are taken from being rebels who are clothed in the filthy rags of our own false righteousness. And we are made to be children of God who get the popcorn seat at the great battle. We sit there and worship and watch Jesus conquer on our behalf as he rules and smashes the nations with an iron scepter by the power of the word of God. So the first work that Jesus does is he rules and shepherds. The second work that he does is he treads out the winepress of God's wrath. Jesus is the agent of God's judgment and justice. Notice here we we see two actions happen in that. First, he captures and punishes the beast and the false prophet. We'll see an extended capture and punishment and judging of the dragon as we move into chapter 20. But here, as the beast and the false prophet have sought to deceive the nation's and, and trick them into worshiping the dragon, um, they are cast alive into the lake of fire, pointing to the fact that their punishment is going to be eternal and ongoing. And then he slays the armies that are called to battle by the beast and the false prophet. He strikes down the nations. In Isaiah 11, verse 4, we are told that the root of Jesse, that stump of Jesse, which will be cut down, will be protected until a stump can rise up, a root can rise up, a branch can rise up out of that stump, and that will one day strike down the nations. And as he slays this army, remember this is symbolic, we will get into the judgment of humanity here a little bit later, but in this symbolic nature, we see a great reversal of the wedding feast of the Lamb. In the wedding feast of the Lamb, God's children are gathered to feast on animals, and in the great feast of God Almighty, the animals are gathered to feast on humanity. Humanity arrayed in rebellion against God. Uh, one preacher that I've listened to in the past, Tim Keller, talks about, you know, do you ever wonder why you're out hiking in the woods? Animals treat us with hostility oftentimes. It's because we act in hostility toward their God, toward their creator. And many times they get it better than we do. We are in rebellion against God, against the creator of the animal kingdom, and one day God will use that animal kingdom as a part of his judgment upon fallen and stricken humanity. So we've seen the glory of Christ in his person, and we have seen the glory of Christ in his work. You almost expect a song at this point in the book of Revelation, don't you? Every time we've seen the glory of God so far in the book of Revelation, there's been a Hallelujah for the our Lord God, the almighty reigns or hallelujah for the smoke of her goes up forever. There's there's no song because we're 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 accelerating our way to the end as we move through this. But you and I are called to worship. Our Lord and Savior, we are called to to see his glory in the scriptures and to see his glory as he works in this world, I. Even within the church, we forget the glory of Christ. Several years ago, there was T-shirts and coffee cups going around that said, Jesus is my homeboy on it. And that's a mentality that limits Jesus to the role of just our good friend, a good teacher, our fire protector as he provides for us the means by which we can avoid hell and damnation and yet still live whatever life we want to. But Jesus is your prophet, priest and king. As prophet, he proclaims he is the word of God who by his word and by his spirit proclaims the will of God to humanity, the will of God for salvation, He is the priest, your priest, who has executed perfectly the salvation necessary for the redemption and covering of God's people. And he continually makes intercession for us. And he is the sovereign king, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Who subdues us to himself. And will one day subdue and restrain all of his enemies and our enemies. Jesus is the beautiful, glorious, sovereign, holy savior of his church. And whatever life is like, we are called to remember his glory and the glory of God that we see through him. Let us pray. God and Father, we do thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the glory that is revealed through him. We thank you that he is truly God and truly man, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the Lord of God, that he is incomprehensible, that he is faithful and true. Help us to worship him well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.